Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Nathan, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Olaxa and Andre. In this week's episode, we explore how the global war effort and how public opinion has changed over the course of a year. This and more on Zakhradoni Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. For those who have been following the war over the past year, I'm sure we've all realized how many changes and how dynamic this situation is. Uh, so today what we're going to do, we're going to talk about how Ukraina's actions in the war has changed how people perceive the country since the war began. So what we first would do is we're going to have a look at what are some of the changes that have happened over the past year throughout this conflict, and then we're going to move into how um, public opinion polls now uh, represent or what people think of Ukraina now. So, Alexa, do you want to start us off? What are some of the, what's one of the things that's changed or that changed last year? So, one of the biggest, I think, shocks to the international system besides Russia breaking the unspoken rule that you can't change borders through war is the fact that a major global economy has been sanctioned out. So, previously, if you remember, whenever they talk about sanctions, it was against Iran, North Korea you know, one of the African states where, you know, they're not really big major global players. They may have been regional players, but it didn't really affect the global economy. Um, and this is the first time that I'd say like a major economy has been sanctioned. And whilst, um, you know, Russia's economy probably hasn't collapsed as quickly as um, experts had expected, um, the Russian propaganda that everything's fine is also a lie. So The Guardian has released um, a bit of an in-depth analysis of it. And when the war broke out and the first set of sanctions were imposed, there were predictions that the Russian economy would collapse by 15%. These haven't eventuated according to the Russian figures. And apparently, whilst there's been a small contraction in the Russian economy of 2%, they're expecting it to grow next year. Now, these are obviously fudged numbers, but... Um, what expert analysis has done is that um, they agree in the sense that whilst the Russian economy hasn't collapsed, it has now become dominated by the military-industrial complex because that's the only industry that's seeing growth in the country because obviously Russia's been cut off from SWIFT so they can't trade globally. They've been cut off from Western te tech exports, so now they're buying semiconductors through Iran and China who are themselves smuggling this stuff in. So it's really cutting up on what they can do. And so, for example, car production in Russia has collapsed by 67%. Their machinery ex uh, um, capabilities have collapsed by 53%. People are buying less TVs. And so what they're saying is, is that whilst overall the Russian economy officially is doing okay, it's actually starting to spiral in a downward uh, thing where people aren't spending money because they know that they're going to be struggling. And so there's a big increase in the amount of deposits that people are holding because obviously for them, like the money is more worthless and they know that the things that they can buy are out of their reach. And so they're saving it just to be able to afford food, which obviously, you know, compared to the struggles that Ukraine is going, which if we look at the latest IMF forecast, the Ukrainian economy contracted by 30% last year. 
and for 2023, it's expected to be, I think, a 3% contraction. However, um, with then growth expected in 2024 if the war can end. However, what the IMF does praise Ukraine for is that even in the time of war, new reforms are being passed, new economic um, policies are being implemented to grow the economy, people are still paying taxes, and so the government is able to um, fund government services, obviously with the help of international aid, but the current government is being very much praised that they're still pursuing reforms. Uh, Like recently, the Ukrainian army's procurement system is becoming more public. Um, Obviously, maybe not the weapon stuff, but the more day-to-day stuff, like the way they buy their food, the way they buy stationery. It's all schemes that used to be hidden from public view. That's all becoming public in time of war. And so um, there is a lot of um, progress in that part for Ukraine. Definitely, I would say Russia is feeling um, economic pressure to some degree. So it's interesting to see how these, when these long-term effects, like the car industry, and um, I wonder if these, if these sanctions continue after the war, um, how that will affect them in the global market. So one thing um, you touched upon how, um, like how Russia is being affected, and um, not too long ago, uh, Putin actually. Um, he actually said that the Russian economy was suffering in some sort of way. Um, up until that point, he had just been saying, oh, no, we're fine, we're stable, um, and these sanctions aren't doing anything to us. And then um, in one of his speeches, I can't remember exactly which one, but um, he did pretty much confess that the Russian economy had started uh, or like was um, contracting. I think the bigger effect over the over the sanctions is Putin's actual mobilization policy. So because of that, what over a million Russian people have fled the country, mm-hmm. and they're all obviously the more higher educated that could afford to flee. Um, you get the brain drain problem because obviously once they've moved, they're not going to come back because the political situation in Russia is never going to be welcoming back to them. Yeah, and I think that will affect the economy more in the long run for them than any western sanctions like the western sanctions will help but the brain drain in the long run will affect russia more i think yeah what about refugees andre yeah so um since the start of uh the invasion over 8.1 million refugees have fled from ukraine um and this has been recorded across europe um while an estimated 8 million have been uh, displaced within the country um, and this was all by late May 2022. Um, by now, I think it 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 would have stayed the same because at that point most uh, most people had already left or um, yeah, most of them had already left by then, mm. um, or they had simply um, gone further f- outside of Europe as well. Um, this. This pretty much equates to one quarter of the country's total population, which is huge when you like look at it. And considering of that 8 million that left, um, 90% of those refugees were women and children. Um, and uh, more than half of the children in Ukraine had already left that home um, with a quarter um, having left the country as well. So 
Uh, overall, this is uh, Europe's largest refugee crisis since, since uh, World War II, and it's the first of its kind since the Yugoslav Wars. Um, and overall, it's the fourth largest in history as well, being I, the largest in the 21st century as well. I think what's interesting is is you could see Putin trying to lay the groundwork of scaring Europe about immigrants, because I think if you remember in 2022... They had the Iranian refugees flying to Belarus and trying to cross into Poland. Yes, that's right. I remember how <clears throat> Europe freaked out. Like, they put up the walls, they brought the army in to stop people. And I think he saw their reaction to that. At, um, I think he believed that if the same happened in Ukraine, the same would happen. Poland would just close the border. Hungary would close the border. Slovakia would close the border. Romania would close the border. And people would just be trapped in Ukraine, not able to get out. And I think it's a testament to um, Europe that they are able to see when there is a crisis on their doorstep, they do step up and absorb people. And I think it it's one thing for, you know, because people always will then complain, oh, it's a bit racist that they're taking in Ukrainians. Why weren't they taking in the Iranians or well, the Poland, Syrians? The Polish leadership was very, very transparent that they did not want to let in, like, Muslims into their country. Uh, and the other thing was, I think they mentioned, and what the rest of Europe um, said as well, was that they had already landed in Belarus, which was technically a safe country mm. for them, um, where they aren't persecuted. And so they should have applied for um, refugee status back there. I remember there was also something about how they, Belarus had broken some kind of international law or one of its own laws because it had offered asylum to refugees under false pretenses and then try to kick them out of the country so yeah yeah and i think um that obviously for europe like it's a much closer conflict so i think there's a lot more sympathy for ukraine because obviously the distance between i mean germany and ukraine is a lot closer than for example germany to the middle east yeah i mean a lot of syrian migrants went to and refugees went to turkey yeah, Turkey, yeah. then Greece, and then they went all the way up. So I think also the fact that Poland has taken the brunt of it, um, Ukraine has been very grateful in its statements to the Polish people. And um, I know Zelensky, every time when he mentions uh, the refugee crisis, he always names the countries that have done the most to help. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, what, Europe, uh, what the EU has done is they've invoked the Temporary Protection Directive. And that gives Ukraine the right to stay, work, study in uh, the EU for a minimum of one year. But um, there have been some con uh, controversies in terms of the uh, refugee crisis, mainly being like some human trafficking concerns. So some of them have been um, where uh, after crossing the border, say into Poland or um, the, uh, Slovakia or Hungary, um, there would be a lot of um, fake taxis or um, or vans or some other like, bus or whatever, and they would pretty much say, oh, we can take you to here or to there. And after that, um, these uh, refugees would be abducted and they'd be trafficked. Um, and so in the end at Poland, I think, started putting up messages saying only go to confirmed sites that we have and where we've confirmed with um, the driver, like their background, the uh, police records as well. 
Um, another one has been unaccompanied minors. So a lot of children have been crossing the border as well by themselves without any sort of relative and stuff. And yeah, it's kind of hard to deal with a child outside of your own country and especially without any relative. Um, although one of the biggest ones has been racial discrimination. Um, since Ukraine has a lot of international students, um, I know I heard one sto uh, story, I believe they were Indians from Poltava or Kharkiv, I can't remember exactly. And once they, they tried to cross the border into Poland, I believe it was, and they pretty much got rejected at the border by the border patrol, I think. Um, and they were pretty much saying, why should we let you in? You're not really a refugee of some sort. Go back to your own country, in a sense, what they were saying. Yeah. And in some cases, like, they were beaten as well. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, so it's a very tough and touchy subject. But I think in general, if you look at the bigger picture, um, Ukraine's refu Ukrainian refugees have been treated very well and been very accepted. And obviously, as there is in any situation, there is, you know, bad apples that put a bad name. Mm. Yeah. But overall, I think the world has been very accepting of Ukrainian refugees. And I think... It's the first time, because usually people are fleeing from terrorism. Mm. I think it's a lot easier for people to understand people fleeing a, a war. war where it's like one country invading another country. Yeah. One thing I, uh, I want to mention is um, when you look online, you will see that Russia is actually one of the largest um, countries that a lot of refugees, in quotation marks, I'd say, um, have been accepted where... Um, at the moment, it's 2.8 million, uh, with Poland being at 1.5. Um, the reason for this is that a lot of these refugees that have entered into Russia have been forced into traveling to Russia, um, forced de deportation of children as well. Um, and there have been stories where um, they go through filtra uh, filtration camps or even... Um, not uh, interrogation camps, um, and they've had their passport, their driver's license taken away from them, um, and once by the time they get into Russia, they have no sort of form of ID, and so it's very hard for them to even leave, in a sense. And um, and because of this, uh, it's pretty much really hard for them to leave Russia. Well, and that's why the International Criminal Court launched the... Um, like put Putin on their wanted list because as president it was under his directive that this all occurred well they were able yeah. to directly tie it to him to him yeah. and his random minion that uh, they also charged with it I think it's the abutment scene. yeah the human rights ombudsman in Russia but yeah. yeah so I think slowly justice will happen and Ukraine is obviously doing everything it can to get its citizens out of Russia but obviously they have to negotiate with the country that's invading them. So it is a bit hard. But I know every time they're able to get children or refugees so-called yeah. from Russia, it's very much big news in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, Which so, I think comes to sort of the Ukrainian spirit and defiance, Nathan, yeah. doesn't it? So when we look back, well, think back to a year ago, I remember when on the day the invasion happened, the internet, as it does with everything, um, all the memes that were coming out of, out of it, um, Ukraine seemed to be like the butt of the joke. 
um, on the day of the invasion. I remember I saw one. It was uh, a scene from The Simpsons where he buys the new car. And he's like, oh, what country is this car from? And it had Putin. He's like, oh, it no longer exists. And the car was like, Ukraina. But since Putin's plan was, oh, we're going to take the country in what, four days, did he say? Three days. Three days. Obviously, that didn't happen. Zelensky stayed. Um, the soldiers stayed. Um, and they they defended their homes. The, um, the massive convoy into Kiev stalled. Russian tanks were getting destroyed constantly. You had farmers and gypsies stealing tanks. Um, you know what I found funny is in the opening days of the war where Putin, I think in his special military operation, told the Ukrainian army to surrender Randall. or to overthrow the government. Mm. And in my mind, I was thinking, why would the Ukrainian army do that? They, they've been following the government's orders for the last nine years. Why would they suddenly? My guess is he was probably looking at um, what happened in Afghanistan and figured that, oh, it's, um, you know, this, in his mind, Ukraine is a, a puppet regime like the Afghanistani government and, you know, it's going to fall as quickly as um, as those soldiers ran and the Taliban took over. But it's not because it's it has its own identity and its people have existed there for hundreds and hundreds of years and they're going to fight for their independence. And pretty quickly, the entire world's perception changed because, you know, not just soldiers were fighting or standing up to um, the Russians, but ordinary citizens were standing up to the Russians. The grandmother that told the guy to put the seeds in his pocket so flowers grow when he dies, the soldier telling the Russian warship to go F itself, which for me, that was the first sign that there was going to be uh, defiance against Russia. Um, <clears throat> so that definitely changed the entire world's perception of how much Ukrainians are going to fight for their own independence, um, even to the point now where the spirit of Ukraine and Zelensky were named um, the Time Magazine's Person of the Year because it's something that clearly the world was not expecting and yet here we are a year later and Ukraine is still standing and Russia has been bogged down now and had to mobilize troops because the courage and the, the spirit that the Ukrainians demonstrated is something that was not expected by Russia or the rest of the world. And that's really changed the entire face of this war. And I think that leads into how terrible Russia's infiltration of Ukrainian society was, mm. where you know, all their fifth columnists were just taking the money that they were being given to set up these pro-Russian organizations and just using it for themselves. Mm. And then this house of cards, you know, fell apart as soon as the invasion happened. Yeah. I'm sure someone got a very stern talking to at the FSP. <laughs> 100%. And even now, though, I still see, um, <clears throat> you know, people that try to undermine exactly why Ukraina um, has fought the way it has. Um, I saw someone who was, mind you, on Joe Rogan's podcast. He had a theory that, oh, Putin's plan was to uh, take over Ukraine, but he left it too late. And since 1991, it's developed its own um, culture and its own uh, image, which is not true because Ukrainians have existed for hundreds of years. But it's just this idea of, um, oh, you know, it, it's just that Putin messed up and he hadn't he hadn't done it in time and he wanted to take over this country that used to be the Soviet Union, but now they just don't want to be part of the Soviet Union again. But they, they have no understanding of how far back 
the fight for Ukrainian independence is gone. The other thing is, is that um, they they don't seem to understand um, that Putin's whole um, like idea of Ukraine pretty much started back when he became president. It wasn't as severe like um, in the media, but um, it's still the same because during the 2004 protests um, in Ukraine, he came to Ukraine and um, he suggested that, or he pretty much said that um, you should vote for Yanukovych instead of Yushchenko, uh, um, my apologies. And in the end, the Ukrainian um, voters all went and voted for Yushchenko instead. Hmm. So uh, even from back then, he had a negative view of Ukraine and always wanted closer control of it. Well, he told George Bush it was what? It was a joke of a country? He didn't recognize it? He thought It wasn't a real country a real back country. when Ukraine tried to join NATO. Yeah, and I think that the recent counter-offensives have very much increased Western support for Ukraine, and we've seen that in the amount of military aid being given to Ukraine. So, Nate, do you want to take us through some of the stuff that's been donated? Yeah, so <clears throat> when we look at... Um... Uh, some of the things that have come, well, if we're looking at from Australia, um, apparently Ukrainian soldiers love the Bushmasters. Apparently they're super comfortable, super convenient, um, which is great. I know um, there was hesitancy about giving Ukraine um, the uh, fighter jets, but yet the um, defense minister, I believe it was, said, oh, just give us the training because we know we're going to get them anyway. Yeah. Um, Lots of uh, the tanks have been going through. Which I can't remember. I know they have all the different names, animal names. Which one's the German one? Uh, so the Leopard, Leopard. is the German one. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Challenger from the UK and the Abrams from America. Mm. And in terms of other stuff, obviously other countries have given what they have. So, for example, Slovenia gave Ukraine T-55. So whilst not battle front, like frontline tanks, like they're still useful in rearguard actions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So when we're looking at, um, and this kind of goes into our um, opinion polls here, when we're looking at support for Ukraine, what we're going to cover is we're going to look at the public polling towards military support, the public, uh, public polling towards the economic situation, and the public polling for uh, the plan for peace. So we're going to do a bit of a comparison here. We're going to look at what was the opinion at the start of the war, versus what is the opinion now. So we'll start off with what's happening at the moment. So moving close to Ukraine, we'll start off there. Estonia, 66% believe that uh, of Estonians that were polled believe that Western allies must continue to offer military support to Ukraine. And 85% of Estonians favor Estonia's military support for Ukraine. So I know with well, you know that with Estonia, there's also fears that that might be another target of Putin's as well. Um, so if they're looking at what's happening in Ukraine, they're definitely going to want to send support there. Now that hasn't changed very much from the start. Estonians were always in favour of uh, of support for Ukraine. The big one we need to look at here, however, is also Germany because Germany has uh, plays a key role. So. At the moment, 49% of Germans feel that delivery of heavy weapons to Ukraine will increase the risk of a Russian attack on Western states, whereas 45% do not fear this. So there's a public position that sending support is going to trigger some kind of action from Putin, which I don't know if that's 
really the case given that they're, they're pouring so much so many resources into ukraine how can they possibly um impact the uh, the security of other nations at this point yeah and i think by this point the west is very much entwined with ukraine and the outcome of the war and so it's a bit of a weak argument to say oh but it'll escalate the conflict mm-hmm. um at this point there's not much besides boots on the ground that will change the conflict and every time you know russia chucks up a hissy fit that you know if you give ukraine this weapon it'll be the end of the war because we'll nuke them every time they've given it nothing changed yeah so at the start of the war the germans were there was 67 percent wanted their country to be more involved uh, in international crises so even though at the start of the war they were more they were more interested in that, it seems that now there's becoming a bit more of a hesitancy and a fear towards um, providing. It says specifically here the providing of um, heavy weapons to Ukraine. So I'm guessing that's your tanks and all those kinds so of things. That's probably during the leopard discussion. <clears throat> yeah. So, well, this uh, I should probably point out this comes from um, polling that's done by the European Parliament of um, countries from inside of the EU. So this one specifically is from the 17th of March. This report was released. So, yeah, would have been. Around that time, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so now we move into Hungary. Now, Hungary is an interesting country because even though it's part of the EU, we see a lot of support for Putin. Oh, not for Russia, I'll say. I won't spoil too much. Um, <clears throat> but in Hungary at the moment, 76% of those surveyed do not agree that the European Union and its members should buy more weapons for Ukraine. And 72% oppose the European Union training Ukrainian soldiers. So they're pretty much against all of this, all support for Ukraine. But what's interesting is then when they were asked about the opinion of Vladimir Putin, President Vladimir Putin was viewed negatively by 71% of Hungarian respondents. So majority, a massive majority of the country dislikes Putin, but yet they don't want to support Ukraine and they don't want to even train soldiers for Ukraine. So, And that number hasn't changed very much from the start of the war. They said that 81%... Um, of the president's sympathizers believe that everything was fine and there is no need for the prime minister to condemn Russia harshly at all. And that was when that was at the start when the invasion first occurred. And 64% of the Hungarian population, they considered the attack on Ukraine to be an aggression. However, they still didn't want any condemnation or anything like that. So we kind of have an interesting dynamic where it's it really plays into that whole Hungary first kind of um, dynamic of yes we feel bad but at the same time let's not do anything about it yeah and i think that's why a lot of people in the european <clears throat> union don't like hungary because of their weird state because it's like okay sure you can disagree with what, like with what we're doing but they shouldn't be able to just stop it yeah so they've had to do creative workarounds where the eu has sort of had to exclude hungarian money Mm. from aid to ukraine or some stuff like that and it's just like come on hungry um across the pond in the u.s uh support for ukraine has actually softened uh, especially military support um so pbs news actually released an article this is from february and they said support among the american public for providing ukraine weaponry and direct economic assistance has softened as the russian invasion nears a grim one-year milestone so this was done with uh, the associated press this poll and um the public re- uh, Center for Public Research Affairs. So now it says 48% say they favor providing weapons, 29% oppose it, 
and 22% are neither um, <clears throat> for or against. Now, last year when they polled, 60% of US adults were in favor for sending weapons to Ukraine. So we've gone from 60% down to 49% in the United States. Um, there's been a lot of backlash um, when Republicans have been offering um, support. A lot of the further right-wing Republicans have been um, attacking Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, for example, for their support on Ukraine. Um, the article also mentioned it's divided a lot by party lines. Um, but I think that this could also be tied with the fact that the Pentagon failed its audit and it has... Um, at the moment, $3.5 trillion in assets, and it can only account for 39% of them. So given the state of their of transparency, I guess, in the Defense Department's budget, it doesn't kind of surprise me that Americans are going to be more hesitant when it comes towards you know military spending going forward. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think as long as Ukraine continues to have successful counteroffensives, I think that will shore up support because obviously then it shows that the aid is actually making a difference. Mm. Mm. I think like the major, the at first... least on a political level, yeah, because mm. that was pretty much decided after the first three days where Ukraine managed to demonstrate we can hold, and then and then it was the Kharkiv and Kherson offensive. They they also showed that Ukraine can still push forward. And that, yeah, it has the capability and organizational knowledge to do combines armored offensives, which is what you need to recapture all these places. Yeah. yeah. And as long as it's hardware, it seems like Americans are fine with it. It's they're yeah, don't, well, and not in favor it. with sending direct government funds just to Ukraine. It wants to be actual, you know, hardware, humanitarian aid packages, as in, you know, resources and whatnot, not just sending money to the government, which is what they seem Americans seem to be against. Yeah, so I think like another major booster would be the the next counteroffensive, but then like other ways would be just to I don't know keep up to date with um, what's happening in Ukraine and supporting where it needs to be done. I think even the Russians know that the counteroffensive is going to break through somewhere because you can tell that they're trying to set these crazy expectations of how far um, Ukraine should be able to break through. If you look at what they say, they're like, oh, if Ukraine only captures this much territory, it's a failed counteroffensive. And my opinion, any recaptured territory is a, success, is a successful counteroffensive. So yeah. there's obviously going to be a lot of, and you'll be able to tell at which media sort of leans which way, because the ones that start saying, oh, you know, they've only taken this much, oh, yeah. you know, they haven't met expectations. I saw one guy who said that, because the Russians retreated for, from Kherson, it doesn't matter anymore because the Russians gave it up. So it's not really a victory. When they pulled out of Kharkiv, the same guy was like, oh, but the Russians withdrew, so they weren't beaten. So technically, it's not a victory. <laughs> Traditionally, that's what happens when one side attacks. The I mean, what's going to happen? They cross over the border back to Russia. Uh, technically, not a victory because Russia gave it up. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is um, how can Ukraine maintain support? So especially for us in the diaspora, we have the ability, as we've shown, um, to change um, global support um, for Ukraine with all the protests and activism that we've done. Um, but keeping in mind, I have, a, I have a quote here from someone that PBS spoke to. He's an American guy, and he said, I am sympathetic for Ukrainian for Ukraine's situation, and I feel badly for them, 
but I feel like we need to take we uh, we need to first take care of the priorities here at home. So that's a guy from California, a Republican from California. Um, so given in mind that you have people that kind of are dealing with their own internal situations, you know, uh, with increased cost of living in countries like America where they don't have um, as much government public support. oh yeah public health care. Um, especially when we see now the like the Finns are worried about their welfare state. How can we maintain support for Ukraine while also assuring people in their own context that it's you know it's still in their interest? Because at the moment I feel like there's a bit of war exhaustion maybe, and some people are going to start feel like yeah, but we need help here. So why are we sending money overseas? What would we say to people like that? I don't know. I, I know at my job. Everyone keeps asking me when the counteroffensive is going to take place. It's like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't work for the government of Ukraine. <laughs> Direct <laughs> to Zelensky. I wish. Um, but um, I think in general, I think as, as any news story slips from the headlines, I think people lose interest in it. Mm. And I think every, if, as long as Ukraine keeps pushing forward, obviously that's going to be newsworthy because, you know, defeating the so-called second biggest army in the world is always an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think that will keep support for Ukraine going. And I think the other thing is, is that Ukraine is quite media savvy. So I'm sure they'll keep coming up with ways to keep the Western audience engaged and considering... Well, as Zelensky as well, making fun of Putin and stuff with the yeah, microphone. Yeah, the Ukrainian army is relatively popular on TikTok. Yeah. So... Um, and obviously, as more stuff is liberated, more war crimes will be discovered, which will again bring it back into the the media. Because we have had a period of quiet, and I, we had the same thing before the last set of counteroffensives, where mm. you know there was the so-called war fatigue, and then as soon as the offensive started, people yeah. got interested again. Yeah, hundred percent. Especially with Bakhmut and how everything seems to have stalled, some people might be not losing hope, but just waiting for. Well, what what's the point of all of this if nothing's happened? But yeah, it, when when another counteroffensive happens, that can really kick everything into gear again. Mm -hmm.